our scripture texts this evening are what they were last time, as we are still considering Lord's Day 31. They are Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we'll be reading verses 15 through 20, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in conjunction with these texts, we will be reading Lord's Day 31. This can be found on page 235 of your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Lord, we read again texts, your holy word, that proclaim the right path for loving each other here in the church, and particularly loving each other rightly in difficult times, in times of weakness or sin upon us or upon our brothers or sisters, how we are to treat them as congregants and brothers and sisters in Christ, and how the church is called in your word to deal with this rather unpleasant, even sorrowful situation. But we pray and trust that your will is indeed right. And so we honor you by seeking to fulfill what your word says. And we pray that we would see that even in what we read and meditate on this evening. We ask this in your name. Amen. We begin our reading in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And as we read this text, I hope and pray for all of us, our current situation and our current culture is impressed upon our own minds. And Paul's words to the church in Corinth is his words to us today, even as we see so many Corinth-like activities in our world, in our midst, even in our own hearts. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Sends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our heart and lives. And we now turn our attention to an explanation of God's word in Lord's Day 31. As we read of the keys of the kingdom... Question answer 83 asks, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance, both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, failed to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. People of God, we continue this week in our study of this Lord's Day, of Lord's Day 31, and we broke it up into two because of the significance and also just the amount of confusion that surrounds both of these keys, but particularly the, the key of discipline and how this topic is incredibly important. And even as we prayed before the service, we recognize this topic is one of deep sorrow. And, and the, the feel of that shouldn't be lost as we talk about this. None of the steps of discipline, we, we don't read with glee that someone is to be turned over to Satan. We don't desire this. And yet, to honor God, to honor Christ himself, we are called to perform these very difficult tasks. And 
I would point to another aspect in theology. What are the marks of a true church? Well, it's the true administration of preaching and the sacraments and Christian discipline towards repentance. And it is often that mark of discipline that is the first to go. And it's not just cut off without repercussions. When we lose that, what we have lost is a desire for the purity of Christ's church. We have lost a commitment to God's word to do what is without a doubt, the most unpleasant task of church life. It is. And yet, it is telling that if a church is willing to do this in love and willing to go about this task for the enrichment of not only all of its members, but the one who is sinning, you see that they are indeed devoted to God's word. And so this mark and this key is incredibly important for the church. Last time we looked at the meaning and reasons for discipline. This night we look at the process and the result of discipline. How, how the, the disciplinary process should be taken. How we have our roles to play in it. How we are to glorify Christ in it. As well as what happens with an excommunicated believer. Or unbeliever, I should say. What happens with such a person. And so we look first at the process of discipline. From start to finish, the process of discipline is done for the honor of Christ and for the good of the church and the good of the member. And we cannot lose that. In a world where what's trying to be said is that that process is inherently unloving, we respond with the truth and say, no, discipline and discipleship is inherently loving and for their good, for the benefit of this person in sin, seeking by all means to thwart their demise, to thwart their retreat from what is true into death itself. That is the goal of discipline. But you see a process. We, we read a process, and we want to start at the beginning. You see, the process of discipline does not start at the church level, at the eldership level, It starts before that. It starts in what we could call the process of Matthew 18, which we read already. The process given in Matthew 18 starts at the most fundamental, the smallest, the most private level between brothers and sisters in Christ. What this means is that actually each one of you and the church as a whole is to have a far more shall I say, commonplace role in the discipline process, in the discipleship process, than even the elders exercising more formally the powers of the church. It's it's to begin on the level of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how it starts, which, which requires something. It requires a great amount of care between brothers and sisters in Christ. A great amount of care that doesn't just overlook something, that cares enough about each other to spot something that might be off, to spot something that might be wrong, or, or as we see in Matthew 18, one who's wronged us, one who has sinned against us in some way, and, and the process there is to start and seek reconciliation on that level. We've missed a step. If we have a, a, a problem, uh, something against a brother, or we see them in some particular sin, we've missed a step. If all we do is bring it to an elder, that is not the God-ordained process. It starts with you. It starts with your care. And in this, I think, we can all collectively repent. Collectively repent of how often we do neglect to care, neglect, neglect to love each other, 
and to do what might be an uncomfortable visit, an uncomfortable quest, but one that is for the love of each other. Would, would we even know each other enough to spot this? Would we have enough relations with each other to actually be in a situation where we've been wronged by one? Is the church just the body that gathers during these few hours on a Sunday and that's it? Do we care and love each other enough? You see, that's so fundamental to this process and the discipline process will not be carried out well if that's not happening. We'll we'll be missing that step if we don't act in concern and love daily towards each other? Or would your presence be such a holy, sanctifying presence that by being there, you would thwart sin? That a a brother or sister in Christ would know you well enough to know that this person is here, I, I won't do this thing that everyone else is doing. Or would your presence actually be one that spurs on in sin, that you just join in? Everyone's just drinking enough, I'll just drink as well, and we can all get drunk together, something like that. Is, is that the way we would approach it? Or instead, would our very presence and our reputation and the love that we have for each other mean that someone would think twice about it? And that we would care enough to even spot such sins in others that we would go to them and say, your behavior, what I see in you, is, is I think, destructive. And I wanted to warn you of it. I wanted to pray with you about it. That takes courage. takes care and concern. And it also, on the part person who may be in the wrong, it takes a great amount of humility to hear that and receive it. But that's just, that's just God's word. That's Proverbs. Proverbs is full of verses that talks about the wise are, are yet wiser upon receiving a rebuke or correction. They, they hear it and respond. And this is the first part of discipline and growth. Would we warn each other when we see unconfessed greed? Would we warn each other when we might see sexual sin or idolatry of any kind begin to take hold? Now, this doesn't mean that we we just see something that might be wrong and and immediately go and and confront them with this grand, that you're in sin, brother, you need to repent. No, we use wisdom. We use wisdom to determine, is this in keeping? Is this a pattern? Is this something that they've confessed? We, We use that love and wisdom. We treat them as we would like to be treated, but but we treat them in some way, right? Sadly, I think often our reaction is to rather than go and speak about it with this brother or sister, we go and speak about it with other brothers and sisters behind their back. You know, so-and-so is really greedy. So-and-so is sleeping around. So-and-so has a problem with alcohol. And the list goes on. But what is that? What is that? But just not caring. That we'd prefer to talk about them behind their back, to spread their sin around, to even speak about them in ways that are wrong and not actually go to them, not actually care about them enough. You see, that's behind the process of Matthew 18. It's easy to say, did you follow the process of Matthew 18? But when you think about it this way, it takes a lot of work, a lot of love, a lot of courage. But you also see how beneficial this is to the church, and if that is to be removed, then the steps of discipline 
that the church has to utilize would be used far more frequently. And the whole process would have short-circuited what God's intention had been. It starts on the most private level. We often think of discipline and think it's excommunication. It's, it's the end. They're out of here. They're, they're, they're pulled from the church. They're removed. That's what discipline is. It's, it's not. That's the extreme end is what we call it. It's, it's the last result. It's, it's what the church doesn't want to do. And it's supposed to come after so many loving admonitions from brothers and sisters in Christ to then more brothers and sisters in Christ to then the elders of the church. There's been multiple steps along the way. That is how it functions ordinarily and normally or how it should. Obviously, there are some situations where the process proceeds quicker and a more public nature of sin in those who fill more public offices, but this is the ordinary way. Excommunication does not occur because a sin was so bad. That's not why one is disciplined. One is not disciplined because they just messed up so bad they can't be forgiven. Excommunication only occurs because there was someone who would not repent, who would not change their behavior or their doctrine in life. That is why someone is cut off from the church. There is always repentance. Well, there's always forgiveness with repentance, I should say, but without that, then there is discipline. But in such cases where the church must be involved, the church does undergo a process of discipline. I want to continue on with this process because there's a lot of confusion around it. I I would hope that we would understand then how the church goes about it. And so we begin with the first step, and this is the first step when the elders are involved. So this is assuming that whole process of Matthew 18 has been accomplished, has been done. The first is what we call silent censure. Silent censure, what is that? Why is it called that? Because it's imposed by the consistory without the knowledge of the congregation. It is silent. It's done without the congregation knowing. What does it entail? Our church order says this, A member who persists in sin shall be suspended by the consistory from all the privileges of church membership, including using the sacraments. Such suspension shall not be made public by the consistory. So the first step when the elders get involved and after speaking with this brother or sister and their continued hardness of heart, they are told that they can no longer partake of the sacraments. They are suspended from the privileges of church membership and the the, the rest of the congregation does not know this. You see the care and concern there. It's giving yet again a, a hurdle to be jumped over, a hurdle that someone has to ignore to continue in sin. It removes from them that great blessing of the Lord's Supper. And they're supposed to then see this and repent. That's what silent censure is. Scriptural warrant for this comes from passages like 1 Corinthians 11, where it's spoken of the danger to someone who partakes in an unworthy manner. And so this is to shield them of that danger, to shield the congregation of that danger. You can also see this in our own passage in 1 Corinthians 5, the warning of the presence of a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so the elders take that seriously, and we take the sacrament seriously, and then it is suspended until there is that repentance. And then we see what is public discipline. This is, again, where the continuation of unrepentance goes on. There's a hardening of heart, and now the congregation needs to be informed, but there's a process that we take even here. 
Our church order says, if the silent censure and subsequent admonitions do not bring about repentance and before proceeding to excommunication, the sinner's impenitence shall be made known to the congregation by indicating both the member's offense and failure to heed scriptural admonitions so that the congregation may speak with and pray for this member. Public discipline shall be done with the use of the appropriate liturgical form in three steps, the interval between which shall be left to the discretion of the consistory. It's a lot of church order language, right? It's pulled from the church order, but what's the intent there? The intent arises directly from Scripture. That the elders, that when it's told to the church, would speak in love and admonish a believer, but as well that the church and other brothers and sisters in Christ would be informed, not only to warn them, of doing the same, but especially, as we just read, that they might pray. This public discipline is in three steps. The first step, the name of the sinner isn't announced or mentioned to the congregation, generally speaking, so that they could be somewhat spared. And so what happens then is from the elders an announcement to the congregation that there is a brother or sister in sin and to pray for them with this besetting sin, to pray that they would repent. Names are generally not given here because you see that devotion to what we read even in Matthew 18, that it begins throughout all the process. It's on a private level as long as it can be. And so the church is informed to be able to pray, and that's the first step. And the second step, after again uh, an interval of unrepentance and hardened of hearts, is when the elders then take this case to the, to the classes and to the gathered member of local churches. And this is what's impressive, we should say, about our, our churches that do this. What's impressive, what's godly about it, is that these brothers in the other churches lend their wisdom. They help to to guide the elders as well, to concur with them, yes, you should proceed in this disciplinary step, to, to ask questions, to ask them, have you done this? Have you considered this option? How have they responded to it? I've been blessed in many classes meetings to see the, the delegates there have, a, have one of these cases brought to them and ask very insightful questions or to, to even tell a church, you know, we think you should slow down, we think you don't need to proceed yet, or to tell a church, yes, we think you need to proceed and proceed with haste. So there, there's this collective wisdom gathering. And after, and assuming there is this advice from classes, then the member's name is mentioned to the congregation so that they can pray for this member specifically. And then in the third step of public discipline, the congregation is informed that unless there is repentance, the member will be excommunicated from the church on a specified date. And that's the way it's given. And why, why that? Well, it's so that there is an end to the process. It's that it just doesn't stay on the back burner for all time, that we don't just reach that point and then can forget about it. No, it's that there would be the honoring of Christ put into action and there would actually take place the loving step, and I say that meaning it, the loving step of excommunication. We see it in 1 Corinthians 5. This, this grave language Paul gives is for the intent that they would repent, that this, this man he speaks of in Corinth would be saved in the day of judgment. And the last and final step is that extreme end excommunication, where one is indeed 
separated from the church. So that's the, the process. Though the timetable, though the process is, is created by the church, it's all found in Scripture. It's all based on good practice, or it's based on the fulfillment of what Scripture teaches. You'll notice again, silent censure, the first step of public discipline, is one that keeps it private. Just as we saw in Matthew 18, there's that desire to spare this one from, that, from going through that, from having their name publicly, publicly spoken and, and in, in that sense humiliated or, or being brought to that place where they have to repent and all knows. It's a desire to spare them of that. It's a loving act. And then the public nature of it we see in 1 Timothy 5.20. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. There's the public finally given that the rest of the church would, as, the, as 1 Timothy says, would stand in fear of it, because it's a fearful step. It's meant to invoke dread. It's meant to invoke fear. It's meant to sting just as any loving act of parental discipline does as well. It's meant to sting. That doesn't change the fact that it is intended as a loving act. Matthew 18 uses that strong language in verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is one of the most misquoted texts in God's word. We tend to, to quote that and think, oh, if we have a Bible study and two people show up, God's there. That's the way I've heard it quoted before, which only denies the fact that God's everywhere present all the time. That's what we believe. God is omnipresent. It's not our presence as believers that mean God will be with us in our worship. That's not the, the application of this. The application is a disciplinary application. It's where the officers of the church are present, where, they're, where they are, they're gathered together, acting in accordance with their role and duty. God is behind their judgment. He is there. That's what he's saying. Harkens back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament and, and the charges being on two or three witnesses. Well, here it's a judgment being pronounced by the elders, and it comes from those who are gathered together. This doesn't mean it forces God's hand. We don't read Matthew 18 in these verses and say, well, God has given the church the right then to excommunicate, to discipline, and if they do that, God then is duty-bound to carry that out, even if it was done poorly or incorrectly. That's not it. But that doesn't take the gravity away of what's done. When excommunication is done by God's servants, by those ordained to lead and shepherd the people, their statement is a precursor to the statement of heaven itself. Their judgment, the judgment expressed by the church, is the one that if there is no repentance, this person will hear out of God's own mouth. It's grave. Yes, the process must be done well. It's true, absolutely, that when discipline is conducted poorly or wrongly, as has happened in the past, God knows what's right. God sorts through it. 
but this, the church has the authority to pronounce and declare the gospel, and what they're declaring is what God declares. That's the point. But you see, even that is a loving act. Why? I would imagine there would be those who are facing a crime who would like to know what the judge would actually judge if it went to trial. To actually know what the, the true judge says and to have a pre-trial to know how will it go. And then to be able to adjust accordingly. You see, when it gets to the actual judge, it's too late. But when it's given by the representatives of God's people here on earth, of God on earth, his representatives, his shepherds, they have that time to repent. They've heard a pre-declaration of heaven's own declaration. And so can repent. One pastor said it well, God is saying wherever two or three of my church officers are gathered together to make that decision, I'm with them. When the church makes a judgment about sin, heaven makes that judgment. In other words, though God is not saying here that he will abide excommunication, that's wrong. He is saying that the elders' words are declaring that very weighty call. Church must act in accordance with one's actions. In the whole disciplinary process, the elders wish they could know someone's heart. They wish that, that you could peel back some sign and see into their heart and, and see, oh, this person, this person doesn't truly believe this. This person is a believer. But, but in truth, that isn't what the church or its officers are called to do. They are called to judge actions, decisions, and beliefs. And so the church is truly those who have to respond and judge these actions. And in a sense, then, their hand is forced and forced by the one who will not repent. And so they have to judge those actions. We trust that if a sinner is a sincere child of God, the discipline would only be for a season, and that later the wandering one will return to the narrow path. But the church is duty-bound to report what Paul says in the next chapter of those who continue in sin, that they will not reach the kingdom of heaven. The church is given this key, this authority to discipline. I want to put before us what that means. It means you have no right to ignore the church when it comes to you and admonishes you. You have no right to ignore that. They are your shepherds. They are your leaders. When they would come to you and tell you that you're not following Christ as you should, you're duty-bound to listen to them as your shepherds and spiritual guardians. If you're asking, well, what if they're in error? The church has a process for that. We're not going to get into that tonight. We're talking about the authority of discipline itself and what it means, and that they as elders in the church have every right to come to you and say, repent, change your ways, or you will not reach the kingdom of heaven. This also means you honor the elders in the process. You go to them when you might have concern. You don't speak about it behind their back. If you disagree with a decision, if you disagree with the way it's been handled, you don't go out and, without knowing, spread a rumor or spread something that would undermine what the elders have done. You would go to the elders and talk to them and speak to them and question them. Now, of course, they cannot give every information, but that is the way to honor them. It's not to sow discord in the church. 
is to respect them, to respect what they've been called to do, because it is a weighty call. And God will judge his officers. He will judge them with a fine-tooth comb. He will judge them as they deserve to be judged. This isn't meant to deter from coming to the elders. You are to come. You are invited to come and speak with them, but to speak in honor. And this whole process is for the betterment of the church. We see in our second point, then, after the process of discipline, we see the result of discipline. A result of discipline, I mean two things. I mean the initial result, how we are to treat one who has been excommunicated, as well as the hoped-for result. So first, initial result, how to treat an excommunicated person. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that the one in unrepentant sin is to be put out, is to be purged. Paul means that all brotherly fellowship is to be cut off. Well, what does that mean? It means you don't treat one disciplined as if they still are your brother in Christ. They don't share the same intimate bond. They don't receive the same table fellowship. They are not recognized to be a part of the covenant, but they're recognized to be an outsider. They don't have access to the Lord's Supper. They're one who you don't embrace as a brother and sister in Christ even if at times you still embrace them as a biological brother or sister, as happens in families. But you treat them rather as one who needs the gospel, as one who isn't among you, as one who isn't one who has the promises of God with them and has accepted them. We use in our forms of excommunication wording that parallels what Paul has spoken of. It's language as to treat as an unbeliever. What does that mean? What does it mean to treat someone as an unbeliever? Well, what that doesn't mean is we treat them coldly. Nowhere in God's word are we called to treat someone who's an unbeliever without concern or love or care. To treat them as an unbeliever means this is someone who needs the gospel. This is someone who isn't, isn't one of us. This isn't someone we share in this fellowship where we bring our burdens to, where we accept their burdens, where we have that relationship. This is one who needs to know the truth of God's word. They need to repent. Paul's meaning that this person should not be associated with you in Christian fellowship as one who belongs as if there were no issue. This person is to know that they've been cut off from the church, but that also doesn't mean that they're totally ignored. Or to treat someone as an unbeliever is to treat them without concern at all. No, rather, Second Thessalonians 3, verse 15, talks about those who have been cut off and says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So there is warning there, there is still care there. But right before that, it says, to take note of this person, to have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. You see, it's difficult because what God's word presents is this call to, to cut off, this call to treat as an unbeliever, and yet as well a hope that they would return, that they would repent. And so God's people are left in a situation where they must search scripture, they must rightly apply that to their situation, they must rightly interpret their situation to know how best to follow God's will in this process. I think there are two dangers to be aware of if the, in this, an overreaction and an underreaction. To someone who's been disciplined, there can be an overreaction where it is that cruel sort of cold treatment. And I don't believe that is what Paul's calling for here at all. 
We can overreact to such language or not properly understand it as if now we treat them as our enemy, but no, we treat them as an unbeliever. What did Jesus do for unbelievers? He, he went to them, he proclaimed the gospel to them. That is what we must do. But, so there's this overreaction danger, but there's also an underreaction danger. The underreaction is we might state our mind once and then continue like life is normal. That we might treat it like it's a speed bump, that, that they were disciplined. You know, speed bumps are rather unpleasant, especially if you hit them kind of fast, and, and everyone bounces in the car. It's an unpleasant bump, but you're over it. You're past it, and then, and then you can proceed on like it's normal. But that's not the intent. Though it's not saying there, there is no contact whatsoever, it's also not saying that, that it means you just proceed on as if life is normal, that there hasn't been discipline, that you can just pick up the same relationship you had before. No, you can't. I can't tell you how in, in that situation that will look in every way. It is very hard to, to determine that. It's very difficult as well for families who have, who have to face this. I think the best we can do is to present the principles of God's word to understand that you need to, you need to treat them in such a way they need to repent, that they cannot resume the same level or the same degree of Christian fellowship they have and as yet walk that line where you still have some way of, of communicating with them, some way of praying for them, reaching out to them. We are to recognize the danger of putting our stamp of approval on how we treat such people. Because what Paul's talking about here, it, it isn't, and this is what he means in 1 Corinthians 5, it's not, just, it's not just someone who's out in the world who's never claimed a faith. There's a difference. There's a difference between one who has never professed faith and is out in the world and needs evangelism. There's a difference between them and one who's been a part of God's people who claims to still be a part of it and lives in that sin. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about this one. Why? Because it's dangerous. It's dangerous to associate with one who claims to profess. Why is that dangerous? Not only might we be corrupted or influenced by such sins, but by treating them with same fellowship or brotherly love and concern would tell the world as well that this person belongs, but they don't. That's part of the process, being concerned that we don't then approve of what they're doing. This means that they're not to be treated like they're part of the fellowship of believers. That means they're not to be invited into your homes in the same way. That they don't come, nor are they invited to a Bible study at your church. Why? We might think, well, well that would mean no, that they can come, they can hear the Bible, but it's different, you see, versus one who you might just bring who would come and, and be, be associated or rather have the, the gospel revealed to them versus one who claims to believe, but by their conduct, by their doctrine, they actually subvert the gospel. That is one who isn't a member at such a place, at a Bible study like that. That's, you see, the, the, the danger, the point. And so that's part of the result, how we treat those who have fallen into discipline. But what's the hope for result as we, as we close? I think we can very easily know that the hope for result is a repentance. We've said it a lot, and yet I think we can approach that with skepticism. A bit of skepticism, thinking, 
Maybe this process is flawed. Maybe it doesn't work. And it's true that in many churches, there is a, a, a seldom, seldomly is it witnessed where someone is joined back in, where someone repents, where they're, they're called back and readmitted. Doesn't happen as much as we want. And so this can perhaps foster this pessimistic idea to the effectiveness of discipline. As we talked about Last time, we know that the effectiveness of discipline isn't just on the number of those who repent. It is the honor of Christ, the protection of God's people, and so forth. But it is true that this process is God's ordained process and that this process is what he uses. It works. Maybe not to the degree we would love to see always. And yet, it is the very means that God uses to leave the the 99 sheep to bring back the one. The whole process is done with that intent, that that this person might be saved. This is the hoped-for result. In fact, the extreme end of excommunication is not a step to be taken lightly, but even that step isn't made without hope. I think that's something we really need to know, that even that extreme end, though not taken lightly, it isn't a hopeless act. It's not us saying, that's it. They're never coming back. They're done. No, it's that hope that in the very action of being purged from the people of God, they would be like the prodigal son. The prodigal son who went to that distant land, who who lived it up, who spent the inheritance on sinful living and yet turned to see that he was ready to, to, to consume slop, who had reached rock bottom and saw that in his father's house even the servants had more than this. They would be shaken and, and awake to the danger, to the reality of what they're doing, even by losing the fellowship they had with their brothers and sisters in Christ, and that they would yearn to turn back, to repent, to have Christ as the center of their life and have a joyful fellowship with his people. There is the goal. Some don't want to make that step of repentance or readmission because they're afraid that it's, it's humiliating, they might think. That's not the case. We are all those gathered here who need forgiveness every day. And that is what readmission is. It's, it's God's forgiveness. It's just seen in that formal sense. And so, though a humble act, because it's contrite, it's, it's apologetic, it's repentance, it's a joyful act, because one is brought back to our number, and the church rejoices to see it. And when the church experiences it, it's actually something that gives us great encouragement to see the steps of discipline God use and use it to bring this one back to us, whom we loved and love, and that's why we sent them away in the first place, to embrace them again. This is the God-honoring process. It is this process of discipline that's following the way that Christ has called us to act, to honor him in doing it, to respond to him by heeding it. And that's how I want to close here today. I want to close with a a call that wherever these words might reach to whatever hearts, if you are in this process undergoing a disciplinary action or if you are one who needs to be, that you hear the reason and be warned, but as well respond and repent. 
And I say it to those of us, we, we, we don't desire it, it at all, but if, if one of us were to become wayward or negligent, that these words be words that would stick in our minds, that we would remember to heed the admonition of God's people, to know what it is as an act of love, and respond and repent. This is the God we love, and this is how the church functions in discipline. These are the keys of the kingdom. The church is the keeper of those keys and it exercise it in accordance with the authority of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that our church, and as well our, our brother and sister churches, our, the churches around the globe, would truly use this well, would discipline in accordance to your word. We pray that our church would exercise discipline with patience, with love, with uh, an eye always to your word, with the hope for result that one would repent. We pray that we would not have to, to see these steps exercised, that, that we would see in our midst those who would hold to the faith and walk in a brightness. But we also know in places where these steps are utilized that we would do it for your glory, but that you would bring these, our wayward brothers and sisters, back, that they would repent. Give to us wisdom in how to, to function and relate to these people. You would help us not only follow your word, but also show them love as we desire. We ask this in your name.